Thank you for that uh, a welcome. It's lovely to be with you and uh, to be back here in Hastings. And uh, just still recovering, I feel very moved by the testimony. In fact, I feel quite emotional about the testimony of Amy's place at university. And uh, I thought that was a fantastic illustration of the unconditional love of God. And um, every now and again it hits me, really, the grace of God on my life. And uh, as an individual that failed pretty much every academic exam, he sat through lack of concentration and effort. I never went to university. And yet the grace of God on my life, and the irony, really, the the comedy of God that I should be pastoring a church in Oxford uh, as a guy who took nine O-levels, as they were then, uh, in the top stream as head boy of his secondary school, socially able, academically lazy, failed every O-level, haven't got an A-level to bless my soul with, and to hear that this morning, I thought, wow, if that's ever a story of Matt Partridge, the grace of God in my life. Now, I'm not celebrating a lack of education. If you're here and you haven't gone to university, go, all right? Don't be lazy. But as an illustration of the grace of God, what a fantastic illustration. Praise God for unconditional places in the kingdom, eh? Isn't that wonderful? Thank you, Jesus, for unconditional places. Well, it's lovely to be with you. If you'd like to open your Bible at 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to read just the last three verses of chapter 2, and uh, some verses of chapter 3. While you're turning there, just to say, I like your new seats. They're very nice, aren't they? Eh? Nice and comfortable. And the curtaining and all the stuff you're doing with the building. I was here about a year ago, I uh, met with Paul this week. Paul came up to Oxford and met with me and had lunch and uh, we were chatting. He said, I think you were the first visiting speaker to speak after we'd split the building into two halves and you're going to be the first visiting speaker with the congregation on the new seats. <laughs> so I hope they're not too comfortable and I hope you don't fall asleep. But it's great we, to, to be here and to be back with you. It's lovely to be with my family as well. Wendy, Esme and Martha are with me today and I'm grateful to them. Uh, I want to look at the whole subject of Christian maturity this morning, the battle for Christian maturity, what it is for us to really press on in God and to feel like we're gaining ground and deepening our walk with him. And when you start reading through 1 Thessalonians, you quickly discover that Paul, as an apostle, if you like, as an evangelist and an apostle, he was so much more interested in the maturity of believers than he was simply in seeing them converted and planting churches. He was never happy until he knew that those that had come to faith under his ministry were growing roots into God and were gaining spiritual maturity. And when we go through 1 Thessalonians, the first section before the one we get to today, we find that he teaches on what it is for a church to be located in God, to have authentic salvation with power, the Holy Spirit and deep conviction as he says in chapter 1. And uh, then he starts talking about how congregations of new believers are to be cared for. He begins to talk about his own input ministry into the church in Thessalonica. And he describes that ministry in a number of ways. He talks about himself as an encouraging father to the church in Thessalonica. And also he uh, describes himself, interestingly, as a nursing mother to them. He has a number of illustrations which are very, very tender. They're affectionate. You know, he's not the CEO of a new branch of the Apostle Paul's ministry. He is like an encouraging father to this congregation. His input and ministry to that church is like a father raising children. He's wanting to see them develop and mature as they get older in God and like a nursing mother, tenderly defending and caring for them. When they get hurt, it's that kind of ministry that helps the healing process, that keeps it together, that brings them to a place of healing and restoration. And then we get to the section I want us to read today, and we're going to talk about this whole battle, if you like, for Christian 
maturity. And if ever we're in doubt, really, of that commitment in the New Testament, not simply to see people saved and then bounce off to the next town. You know, Paul isn't what we might see today, really, in some ways, with an itinerant kind of ministry where somebody breezes into town, you know, 300 people give their lives to Christ, they bounce off to the next town and, you know, another couple of hundred there. Paul isn't like that. He doesn't bounce around without ever coming back. He comes back to make sure that people are taught and are growing and are deepening in their life in God. An example of that would be Acts 11 and verse 26. The church at Antioch, it says, for a whole year they met with the church. Paul and Barnabas met with the church and taught them day and night for a whole year to to enable them to grow, to make sure they didn't stay as spiritual babies, but to help them grow up and mature. It really mattered to Paul that those who came to faith also came to maturity. There was a problem with this very issue in Corinth. So in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 1, Paul has to write to them and say, Brothers, I cannot address you as spiritual, but as worldly, as mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not even solid food, for you're not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. And Paul's troubled because their maturity seems to have kind of faltered. They're they're not maturing. And Paul writes to them to encourage them to really break through. And Jesus himself, of course, in Matthew 28, said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore you go and make disciples of all nations baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Making a disciple isn't simply leading somebody to a decision in Christ. Making a disciple is sitting and living with individuals and teaching them everything that we ourselves have learned from Christ. That's how maturity is gained among the people of God. And I know Paul and the team here in their heart, and their heart is not simply to gather an ever-increasing crowd, praise God for growing churches here at King's Hastings, but to ensure that the crowd that continues to grow also deepens its roots into God and continues to mature in their spiritual walk with Jesus Christ. So they don't remain, if you like, as mere infants, like children, as Paul had to say to Corinth, but they continue to grow. And one of the ways that was achieved was to make sure that the kind of input, fatherly, motherly, encouraging ministries that came into the church were well received. That Paul could be welcome there. In fact, if Paul sent anybody else, they too would be welcome there. And we're going to read here in chapter 3, it's not simply that Paul gave input ministry to the church here in Thessalonica, he sent Timothy as well. There's a team that came simply to ensure that the church continued to grow well and deepen its roots into God. So we're ready to read about that. Okay, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to start at verse 17. Now, press pause. (laughs) Let me just tell you before we read that, that Paul was with the church in Thessalonica. There was such a a kind of an uproar against Paul's ministry in that place. They had to flee for their own safety. So now, without any expectation of it happening, Paul finds himself separated from the church he's loving and trying to draw into maturity, and he finds himself having to write to them because of the distance. And he says, but brothers... When we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to come and see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did, again and again, but Satan stopped us. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you... Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Chapter 3, verse 1. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. 
You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as well you know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith, for I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Let's just briefly pray and then we'll just look at that passage together. Father, we want to thank you for this text. Thank you for the way it's alive to us as we read it. We can uh, count ourselves right into the story. We can see ourselves right on the page. It happens to be Thessalonica, could be Oxford, could be Hastings. We thank you for that. Thank you for your living word. And we ask you right now, Holy Spirit, we invite you to continue with us in this place. Holy Spirit, come and teach us the things of God. We pray for that. We pray for this Bible text to come alive. For it to nourish us and change us and for it to make us more like the Lord Jesus. We pray for that in his name. Amen. A number of things I want to draw your attention to from this passage and uh, particularly in the centre I want to talk about this battle for Christian maturity. Before we get there I want to make one point which is this. There is a commitment in Paul and his team to relationships. It says in verse 17, but brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. We wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. And he goes on to talk about what is our hope, our joy or crown in the presence of our Lord. It's you, indeed you are our glory and crown. Well, however you read this, what comes overflowing from the text is Paul and his team was in a remarkable relationship with this church. There was a commitment to relationships. This was not professionalism in ministry. This was tender relationship. And there's real pain in the separation. You know that phrase in verse 17, if you could look there with me, it says, but brothers, when we were torn away from you, that phrase, torn away, literally means to be made an orphan. And the commentators aren't clear which way round it was. Paul could be saying, I am now cut away from you. I am like an orphan that's been uh, taken away, that's lost its parents. Or, Paul could be thinking of the church and saying, which is more likely really, having just said, I'm like a nursing mother, I'm like an encouraging father. Paul is then thrown away from the church through persecution and he says, you're like an orphan now. We've been torn apart. Like parents and a child who have been separated by force. It's the kind of language that Paul uses. We have been torn away from one another. He goes, actually... I have longed to come to you. I have often thought of you. He says, actually, in person, not in thought. He says, we've been separated in person, but never in thought. It, with the Apostle Paul, it's never out of sight, out of mind. You know, we're so guilty of that often, aren't we, in our busy Western cultures. If it's not in front of us, we don't remember it. 
You know, we've just had three sets of individuals that we've sent from Emmanuel Church Oxford for, to different places in the world. We've had one guy go to the Middle East, had another couple go to, uh, to Asia, but another lady who's going to Stockholm, all of them involved in church planting with New Frontiers projects around, around those areas. And they've provided fridge magnets because they know what we're like. So every time I get the milk out of the fridge, right at eye level is the family that have gone to Kyrgyzstan. And we have fridge magnets because we don't work like the Apostle Paul. We are out of sight, out of mind. Oh yeah, there's Nath and Jenny, we better pray for them. Paul's saying, no, never in thought have we been torn apart. We're still together in my thoughts and my prayers. That's his commitment to relationship. He refuses to take no for an answer. He says, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. We wanted to come to you. Certainly, I did, Paul, time and time again. Paul never surrenders to the separation. He's straining to get back and encourage his church and to help mature them. And then there's the joy of a good report. He says, actually, in chapter 3 and verse 6, Timothy has now just come to, to us from you and has brought us good news about your faith. And it says in verse 7 and 8, it says, actually, and we were encouraged about you because of your faith. And then he says in verse 8, which is a remarkable verse, chapter 3, verse 8, he says, for now we really live since we know you are standing firm in the Lord. It's like Paul says, all the time we weren't sure how you were doing, whether you were prevailing, whether you were growing in your faith. It's like we're dying inside. But now we've heard from Timothy, you are prevailing in your faith, we can really live. It's like there's a relief, we can live again. We know that you're doing well in God. There was a commitment to relationships for the sake of the church to thrive and gain maturity. But the issue is, and this is the centrepiece of what I want to say this morning, it's not without a battle. And the second point this morning is this, there is a battle for spiritual maturity. It says in verse 18, again if you could look at that with me, it says, for we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. It's not an amazing little phrase, but Satan stopped us. You know, the Apostle Paul has got a very, very big applied doctrine of the sovereignty of God. You know, the Apostle Paul was the one who said, actually, the Holy Spirit prevented us going into Bithynia. He actually says, the Lord prevented us preaching the gospel there. You think the Lord prevented you preaching the gospel? What are you talking about? He had a huge uh, theology of the sovereignty of God. But unusually for Paul, in this set of circumstances, the reason he gives for why he has been separated from the church he's trying to bring through to maturity is this. Satan has stopped us. Do you know, Satan does not want the church of Jesus Christ to gain maturity to receive loving, tender input to help it grow and flourish. One of the strategies of our enemy is to cause a breakdown in input relationships. So churches don't want to receive, so then you get churches with complete oxymoron names like independent free church. You think, what does that mean? The church was never designed to be independent. The whole point of the church is it's interdependent is that we give and send and we receive ministry as well. As soon as we become independent, the enemy, and this is no, I don't want to offend any specific churches here or in Oxford or anywhere else, anybody listening, I'm just making an illustrative point. Please don't stone me. (laughs) The point is this. Churches mature and they overcome the schemes of our enemy when they stay related to others, giving ministry and receiving ministry. And there is a battle for our spiritual maturity. In fact, Paul says in chapter 3 and verse 5, for this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent Timothy to find out about you. But it says, Satan stopped us. That word stopped us is the Greek word, I'm told, enkopto. And that word means to rip up the road to tear up the road to make it 
impassable. And it's, so Paul is saying, actually, I long to come to you, I long to travel to be with you, but Satan has torn up the road to make it impossible for me to undertake that journey. Do you know, in wartime, one of the first things that military strikes achieve is to take out key bridges, key roads, and key runways on airports. We send in the airstrike, we send in the air force, and they go ahead and they encopto our enemy. And as soon as we prevent our enemy from transporting supplies and encouragement and strategy to other locations, we're beginning to win the war. And that's exactly Satan's strategy for the church when it comes to relationships with ministries that could bring it through to maturity. He attempts to tear up the road to make that journey impossible. Now the difficulty for us, like Paul, we have a very big applied theology of the sovereignty of God, don't we? It's one of the joys of being in the New Frontiers family is we aren't biting our fingernails trying to work out who's going to win. We know Jesus and his church is ultimately victorious. Amen? Amen. You know, we're not trying to work out. We're not wondering where it's going to go. We know where it's going to go. Ultimately, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We know the ultimate success of the church is assured. It will become that chief among the mountains. All the nations will stream to it. We know that. So sometimes we find it difficult to ascribe genuine destructive power to Satan because it challenges our applied theology of the sovereignty of God. But Paul didn't have that difficulty in this particular passage. He could say, actually, Satan stopped us. And I want to teach without in any way compromising, challenging or reducing our reliance on the sovereignty of God. I just want to say that we do have an enemy and he does have designs on the church. Schemes. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in the 50s preached a remarkable sermon series from Ephesians. And he preached a sermon in that series talking beware, titled Beware the Wiles of the Devil. The schemes of the devil. Paul talks about that in Ephesians 6 and verse 11. He says to be aware of the devil's schemes. Not to be naive about them. Don't stick your head in the sand and pretend they don't exist. We do have an enemy. And he does have schemes. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says... Actually, we must not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. And that's Paul teaching about forgiveness. Paul's teaching in 2 Corinthians 2 about forgiveness and says, we must not be ignorant and outwitted by Satan. What are you talking about? Paul says, actually, listen, if you don't forgive one another, Satan is getting a foothold in your life and through you into the congregation you're a part of. Because division often starts by bitterness and unforgiveness. So he says, actually, don't be outwitted by Satan. Forgiveness is a big deal. Be quick to forgive one another and be reconciled, whatever the offence. 1 Corinthians 7, when teaching on the care within marriage about sexual union, he says, actually, make sure that Satan does not take advantage of you and tempt you. Acts chapter 3 and verse 5, when... Ananias and Sapphira hold back a little bit of the proceeds from selling the family home and Peter says to them how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you're prepared to lie to the Holy Spirit? Actually, the New Testament has quite a high awareness of the reality of an enemy with schemes to bring destructive work to the church and it does us good even if it's slightly sobering to say we too must not be outwitted by Satan when it comes to the work of receiving input ministry that helps us flourish and mature as churches around the UK. Paul could say here, I long to get to you, but Satan has cut in on me, has torn up the road, he's made it impossible for me to get to you. 
So Paul, he's not going to give up on that one. He says, so we're going to send Timothy. And Timothy's going to come and I want you to receive him. And then Timothy returns, as we've just read, and gives a good report. Now let me ask you one or two. We're going to apply this for a minute or two. Why is there a demonic battle preventing Paul returning as he wishes to Thessalonians? What is the big deal? Why? Why has Satan encoptoed the road to prevent Paul going to bring maturity to this church in Thessalonica? number of possibilities. First of all, immature believers are not particularly threatening to Satan. So actually it's in Satan's interest to keep the church full of immature believers. People who don't perhaps know who they are in Christ, what authority they have through prayer, how to apply with authority the word of God, how to break the habits of a lifetime, how to say no to habitual sin, how to forgive and love and be reconciled with people who previously wound you up, how to build a dynamic community of power where God can be honoured right in the middle. Actually, without some maturity, many of those things remain a bit of a pipe dream rather than a reality. So that's one possibility. Secondly, immature believers, if Satan can win, are likely to give up on their Christian faith very, very early. Immature believers are the ones that tend to oscillate and say, I can't really be bothered with this. It's maturity, actually, that brings perseverance, saying, no, I know that God's been with me before and God's going to continue to be with me through this. It's maturity that can write a psalm, like Psalm 23, that says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. You know, just this past week, or the week before, rather, David Coke, some of you may know him, he's the a guy who planted the church originally in Oxford. He's still on staff as an elder with us there. Beautiful guy in his late 60s. He's on his on a first day of his holiday. Two weeks ago, tomorrow. On the phone to his daughter. And his daughter said, Dad, I've got to go. Something's wrong with Summer. Summer is his seven-year-old granddaughter. And what he didn't realise at the time was while he's talking on the phone to his daughter... Summer has fitting in the kitchen in front of her mum. They phoned an ambulance. Ambulance came, took Summer to hospital. Summer had a scan that day and without any prior warning, she was diagnosed as having a brain tumour the size of a golf ball on the top left-hand side of her brain. Seven years old. And this darling Christian family Dave and Margaret as grandparents, Summer's mum and dad, beautiful parents in the New Frontiers Church in Rygate, Summer herself being baptised today by her granddad, that was the plan, is thrown into complete hardship and darkness. Now, it takes some maturity to live through a week like that. You know, immaturity would say, well, where's God in this then? Here we all are, serving God, you know, pastors and we're working and how could God let this happen? There wasn't even a hint of that among any of them. There was a, whatever happens, we're going to continue to lean on the faithfulness of God. Texts would come in every day saying, we've really sensed the grace of God today. Summer has had remarkable peace. Her mum's doing so well. We sense peace too from God. Thank God for the provision that he's made for us in Christ this week. I mean, it's just utterly fabulous. Now, as it happens, having started that story, let me finish it for you. She was diagnosed with a brain tumour on Monday. She had brain surgery on Wednesday and had the tumour removed. They believe that it's benign and we're still waiting for the final biopsy on that. She was in intensive care for two days went back to the ward, she was back at home on the following Monday. I said to Dave in the office, I said, so how did it go with Summer yesterday? He said she came home from the hospital with all of the staples and all of the scar in her, and she said she immediately ran out into the garden and went sword fighting with her brother. <laughs> but it takes maturity to handle hardship. 
And immature believers are more likely to give up. Thirdly, immature believers are unlikely to find the courage to lead others to Christ. You know, mission, it requires the fervency and the enthusiasm of new, maybe immature believers, but it also requires the long-term input and support of mature believers. Mission is not made possible simply through the zeal of new converts. It's the coming together of mature believers discipling new converts and together being on mission. So Satan attempts to prevent Christian maturity for a number of reasons. Let's move on to a third point. Let's talk about the maturing work. When we talk about the need to overcome Satan, not to be outwitted by him, to receive caring ministry into the church to ensure it continues to thrive and mature, what kind of things are we looking at to bring that kind of maturity? Firstly, I want to say relationships. That's where we started at the beginning this, this morning in this sermon. I spoke about the commitment to relationships. And it's obvious, I've been through it very clearly, I hope. Chapter 3, verse 1, when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left, and we sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker. You know, Paul could not find a way to get back to Thessalonica to encourage the church. So what Paul did was he sent somebody else. And you sense from the flow of the New Testament and the way apostolic ministry worked in other places geographically that the New Testament church was overjoyed to receive apostolic ministry from any who were together themselves in friendship and unity. So Paul could send Timothy, and in one place in the New Testament, Paul says, as you receive him, you receive me. He says, actually, we're we're almost like the same person. Because Paul had input Timothy. There was this kind of commonality, this family feel. There were times where the teams were very, very mobile. I mean, we know it if you look at Paul's missionary journeys. You know, he's with different people at different times. It's Paul and Barnabas. You know, then it's Paul and Silas. You know, then there's the whole John Mark thing. You know, John Mark goes with Barnabas and then Paul goes with Silas and there's this kind of fluidity in teams. Nobody is getting stuck on a professional hierarchy. Nobody is saying, except in Corinth where they were immature and that's the problem, it was in Corinth where they were kind of charged with being immature. It was there that they were saying, I'm with Peter. Well, I'm with Paul. I'm with Cephas. They're going round. And then some really pious ones were saying, well, actually, we're with Jesus Christ. You know, top trumps. Beat that one. And it was to that church, don't forget, that Paul says, you are mere infants. I'm still only feeding you milk because you're yet to grow up. Because when you gain maturity, you don't see it as a hierarchy. You see it as a family. You say, as a church, we must receive ministry. We must be welcoming to input ministry that's going to help us mature. We're not going to be outwitted by Satan. And we're going to value relationships. Which means this church has had over the years, hasn't it, a, a blessing from many. You know, from Don Smith, God bless him. I know Guy Miller's been and had some input in terms of prophetic ministry and preaching here. You know, I know you've had many guys that have been in who have really been a blessing. And my prayer is that you'll have many more yet that are going to help you overcome any design the enemy has on you in any way to stunt you or to prevent you from growing into God. So I want to encourage you, keep valuing relationships. Don't ever get stuck on some kind of hierarchical kind of mind picture of input ministry. It's about a family relationship. Secondly, we find that Paul wants to get there to strengthen and encourage them in their faith, says in verse 2, so that no one will be unsettled by these trials. Another area of maturing that needs to happen in every one of our churches in the UK and across the world is this. We must understand the place of trials. 
Paul says, he lists it together. He says, I want to come and strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that you won't be unsettled by the trials. You notice the link there. Paul says, I want to come and strengthen and encourage you in your faith so when someone's diagnosed with a brain tumour, you don't give up your faith. When there's a difficulty in your life, you don't do a U-turn and walk away from God. I want to come and strengthen and encourage you in your faith to make sure you understand how to handle trials in your life. And the danger we've got now with our digital age is that we can turn the television on, stick the skybox on to religion setting, get God digital, and we can have kind of distorted Gospels that tell us that God wants us to have a life without any trials. And we begin to imbibe that. And of course it sounds attractive. I mean, who's going to wake up in the morning and say, Lord, please bless my day with massive trials. Please. You know, give me serious illness in my family today. And give me that speeding ticket. Lord, please, get my car clamped today, Lord. I mean, we don't pray like that. As soon as we hear a gospel that says, Jesus wants you, he wants you wealthy, he wants you healthy, he wants you in a silver Mercedes, you think, cool, I'm hearing the Lord. Kira Baba Sondas. This is my kind of gospel. And we forget, actually, it's not Jesus' kind of gospel. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. Oh, okay. There's like a a kind of a a correlation between pioneering for God and facing hardship. They go together. In fact, C.J. Mahaney, a friend of New Frontiers, a pastor in Washington, he says actually trials are God's divine exams. How are we going to do? Are we going to trust him through them? And part of the maturing work that Paul wants to bring is a commitment to relationships to keep the church open to receiving broad ministry. Also to strengthen and encourage and help them understand how to overcome trials. Verse 5, he says, For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless or wasted. One of, another area of maturity for the church is this, to learn how to overcome temptation. And temptation is something we all face. Temptation is something Christ faced. You know, we mustn't feel guilty about being tempted. It happened to Christ. Temptation is a work of the enemy brought into our lives. It's how we handle temptation that makes the difference. And actually, growing into God with deeper maturity in our lives is the way to overcome temptation in your life. Willpower will help you, but it won't be the answer. You know, practical decision-making will help you, but it won't be the complete answer. What we all need to overcome temptation is a deep awareness of our dependency on God and that tends to come as we gain maturity in God. So Paul's concerned that this fledgling church will have been tempted by the tempter, so it's an action and a title, Paul knows what the enemy's like, and that all of their effort would have been in vain. That they would have been tempted to give up, tempted to go back to their old life, tempted back into the world and all of us have to overcome those temptations pretty much every day. None of us is immune. We have to. Sometimes we can find ourselves, can't we, daydreaming about what it would be like to have some of the freedoms we used to have before we gave our lives to Christ. And you have to shake yourself and think, what am I talking about? I don't want to go back to that. As we drive to church on a Sunday morning to give ourselves and serve and be part of the set-up team and the PA team and the kids team and we drive past our neighbours who are washing their car before going to have a round of golf, we think, oh, look at them washing their car. And I know when he's leathered it off, he's going to go and have a round of golf and I'm going to go serve with all the mega-mix kids. He said, what am I talking about? I've got a new life. The old has gone, the new has come. I'm not living for me any longer, I'm living for him. My life's part of a bigger picture. I've got a new dignity. And yet there's that kind of gravitational pull all the time. And if we're not mature, we won't see it. We'll start to slip. We'll start to give in to that temptation and say, well, it won't matter if we miss one in three. You know? 
The car needs a clean. You mustn't be tempted, even by the world. Part of what it is to gain maturity. Another one, Paul says, verse 10, night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul knows that actually, even though they're doing well, Timothy has come back with a good report. He says, now we can really live. Praise God, we know you're doing well. He still knows that they're lacking in their faith. So he says, actually, I want to come to you so that I can continue to invest in you as a church to continue to actually provide what is lacking in your faith. What do you think was lacking in their faith? Well, some of it, some of it would have been biblical understanding. They would have had to go through the Old Testament scriptures showing how Christ was the fulfilment of the law, the kind of freedom they now have in Christ. Going through Isaiah, they would have needed to be taught those things. But also how to live as a Christian. You know, sometimes I think we think about the Apostle Paul's ministry when we think about Antioch, for example. He stayed there for a whole year teaching. You know, we think it's actually, it's like Word Plus, 24-7, you know, day in, day out. There must have been loads of life training though, mustn't there? Saying, listen, you can't do that anymore. You know, you must be faithful to your wife because you're a Christian now. You've given your life to Christ and so is your wife. His family now is a God-honouring unit which means you can't go and sleep with prostitutes in Thessalonica on a Saturday night. Oh, can't I? No. Jesus wouldn't want you to do that. Oh, okay. Okay, I didn't know that. Okay, well, I won't do that then. This is how you handle your money. You know, you can't owe all of your neighbours and all of the local traders money and never pay them because you're living for Christ now. You must pay your debts. You must settle your bills. Oh, right, okay, I've never done that. No, you must, you must do that. Okay, that's what I'll do then. We're living righteously now. And Paul says, actually, there's some way to go. I want to come. I want to provide what's lacking in your faith in daily life. And then finally, he talks about greater courage in verse 13. He said, may he strengthen your hearts so that you'll be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus Christ comes. He wants to provide them with strength of heart, which is also part of maturity. So, as time slips by, let me just give you some practical application points for Christian maturity. One of the misconceptions about becoming a Christian is that we get it all at salvation. You become a Christian and actually everything changes at that point in one sense. We gain the forgiveness of God which is unconditional. It's never going to be taken away. Praise God. We're forever changed. We're accepted to the Father. We've got reconciliation with God. I mean, praise God. It's all done. But in terms of our life and lifestyle, it doesn't all land in our laps. When we become a Christian and we wake up on the first morning, you've still got to face all of the same things you faced the day before. You've got to start building a new reputation at work. For some of us, we had to build a new reputation in our relationships or our marriage. We had to start, as I've just touched on, in terms of sanctification with how we handled our money. We have to work our way out of debt. We have to think about how we're going to honour God with our resources. We don't get it all at salvation. We have to learn how to honour God with our lives and that takes real maturity. Secondly, we are renewed in our thinking by the washing of the word. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says, how on earth are we going to get all of this new Jesus-type thinking going on in our head? How are we going to gain the maturity? The Bible talks about actually being washed by the word of God. That our thinking is changed as we immerse ourselves in God's book. You know, I'm a really, a really committed golfer. You know, I love golf. You know, Wendy and I went recently to a little art thing out in one of the villages in Oxford and I met a friend of mine who I played golf with, and our wives had never met before. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh. So my friend's wife went up to Wendy, and she said, oh, you must be Wendy. She said, are you a fellow sufferer? I thought, this is not going well. I said to Mike, we must get them apart. (laughs) But when you start any kind of sport, you have to learn a whole new language, don't you? So if you're a golfer, Every one of the words I'm about to read out will mean something to you specifically. You ready? Fade, slice, draw, hook, top, thin, fat, birdie, bogey, eagle, shank, skied. 
Now you're looking at me like I have no idea what you're talking about. Are there any golfers in the room? Any at all? Oh, one! I see, two, I see those hands. Three! See, you're all closet golfers. They know now. You see, when you, become, when you become a golfer, you get into the golf world, you have to learn what those words mean. When you become a Christian, you have to start to learn what things mean. Because before you become a Christian, they're just gobbledygook. I mean, the man on the stage is speaking Spanish. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. But when you become a Christian, you've got to understand what does it mean to live righteously? What does it mean to make godly decisions? You've got to learn what it means to do that and gain maturity as we achieve it. So we're renewed in our thinking. We're committed to a process of education. We want to be reprogrammed by the Bible. Jesus said, abide in me and my word. Know the truth. The truth will set you free. We need each other would be another thing. Those who are over us in the Lord, those who are alongside us in peer group relationships, those we care for, also do us good in the way that we really do gain maturity. And finally, the church really is a nursery bed where young plants can grow up and gain strength and gain maturity. So, let me just finish with one last point and then we're going to pray. What are the results of this progress? Paul really did break through with this church. He refused to let Satan set the agenda, even though Satan had torn the road up, it seemed, prevented him to get back there and be part of the team himself. He sends Timothy. We know through church history that the church did prevail and got underway. What were some of the results of Paul's ministry? It says in verse 7, he says, Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. We now really live since we know you're standing firm in the Lord. And how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of God because of you? Paul continues to value the relationships that I've touched on a number of times this morning. He sees actually that the people are encouraged but also they're giving encouragement to others. Sign of a healthy church. Paul can now say that he can really live because he knows the church is maturing and prevailing. There's a sense of gratitude in Paul. He says, how can I thank God enough for all of you? Amazing, isn't it? He says, what a church. Even though we were torn away, you've prevailed. You've not been tempted away from the faith. You've really stuck in there for God. There's gratitude, there's joy. Paul says, for we uh, have joy that we're in the presence of God because of you. And also, it always provokes prayer. So Paul is praying, thanking God for the breakthrough. Let me encourage you. The grace of God is so on this church in Hastings. Every time I come, I love it. There is something special. There is a dispensation of the grace of God on you. The way you worship, the way you are together as family, it's wonderful. Let me encourage you to keep receiving input. To give it to one another to keep the doors wide open to others who can come and bring friendship as well. Ensure that you don't get outwitted by Satan. Don't get thrown off the primary task of worshipping God in an ever-deepening relationship. Keep going for it with all of your hearts. Refuse any attempt by the enemy to prevent you from flourishing and continuing to flourish. Because you're in a season of real growth. As soon as the church starts praying and fasting and giving, seeking God for breakthrough, the enemy's going to get busy. Be aware of him. Don't give him an inch. Overcome him through prayer. Keep going for it with all of your hearts. Who knows what the future holds, eh? So God's going to bring increase, I'm sure, to your church. And much of that increase is going to be depth as well as width as you continue to press on and enjoy the victories that he brings you. Amen? Okay, let's stand together. We're going to pray.
Father, we want to thank you for your scripture again. We thank you for this passage in particular. We want to thank you for Paul's determination not to be thwarted by the enemy, but to really hang in, persevere for the sake of the church. I thank you for that. We want to thank you for the ultimate success of your church. Thank you that 2,000 years after the resurrection and ascension, churches are still being planted, people are still being saved, that the gospel is still effective in changing lives. Every day, people saved, brought into the kingdom of God. We thank you for that. Thank you that what started cannot be stopped. Thank you when when Isaiah prophesied, the increase of his government and peace will know no end. We're living in the good of that. Thank you that your kingdom's still unfolding, that the church is still prevailing. So, Father, we do pray. I pray for a blessing on this church. I pray you'd keep it flourishing and maturing. Father, I pray you'd defend it and protect it from any design the enemy would have to bring it harm or to slow its progress. We speak acceleration over this church. We pray for that. I pray for growth on every front. We pray as they gather to pray, fast and give. It would exceed every expectation. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to attend meetings where guys and girls gather to pray. I pray you'd break right in to the middle. We pray for the power of God to come flooding in uh, to every meeting. We pray for breakthrough in the Spirit, Lord Jesus. We do pray for a revival over this town again. We pray for many to be brought to the knowledge of Jesus Christ in this town. We pray what looks like a a building push and a, a readiness for growth. We thank you for that heart. We pray exceed that expectation, Lord. We pray uh, uh, fill this new building, uh, Lord, with new believers. We pray bring them in. We pray for the task of maturing believers to become a primary one in this church. I pray for a prophetic edge to this message. I pray that as I've preached about maturity in the church, I pray the need for that maturity would grow. We pray for many infants to be brought right into this church family, looking for discipleship and input. We ask you for it. I pray for a blessing on the church for every area of provision it's looking to you for. We pray for finances for the building plans. We ask you for that. We pray breakthrough with miraculous funding, Lord Jesus, for that. We ask you for it. So Lord, we're looking to you for great things for King's Hastings. Lord Jesus, we know you're able. We know you're willing. Lord, we don't want to be outwitted by the enemy. We will not take no for an answer. We feel the responsibility of God for the call we have in this town. We pray, Lord, let it be fulfilled in great measure in this day. In Jesus' name we say, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Matt, for coming and uh, uh, being with us. Have a great week. We're finished there. Um, if you're a visitor, do head through to the uh, welcome area. We'd love the opportunity to meet with you. And uh, just, uh, just really remind you, praying Friday night and uh, come ready for next Sunday as we start our season of prayer, fasting and giving. Have a great, uh, have a great rest of your weekend and we'll see you in the week. Thanks. <laughs>